Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to ajc.com news breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. That indictment does have nine charges on it. This is another positive step, another great step for finding justice for Ahmad, for finding justice for this family and the community beyond. Frankly, they remind me of the uh, Andy and Mayberry episode where Gomer Pyle was going around trying to make citizens arrest. And uh, they usually turn out badly. They usually, uh, they usually are by, with someone's misinterpretation of the law. I suffered the deepest loss a familiar a family can endure when the McMichaels, with the noting participation of William Rodney Bryan Jr., acted as my son's judge, jury, and executioner. I urge the court to reject the motion for bond and continue to keep Mr. Bryan behind bars. Welcome back. I'm Bill Rankin with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The Ahmad Arbery case bubbled over onto the national scene again last week by way of a 22-year-old tennis player with an amazing backhand. That's when sensation Naomi Osaka wore a face mask with Arbery's name on it during the third round of the U.S. Open. Osaka, whose father is Haitian and whose mother is Japanese, went on to win the week-long tournament. Each day she wore a mask that recognized slain black Americans. Brianna Taylor on day one, Elijah McLean on day two, then Arbery, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, Philando Castile, and Tamir Rice. It certainly didn't go unnoticed. Before she accepted the trophy, Osaka was asked what message she was trying to send. I liked her answer a lot. Here she is, courtesy of audio from the U.S. Open. Well, what was the message that you got? was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. Well, she certainly did that. Ahmad Arbery's father appreciated it too. Here he is on ESPN giving an open message to Osaka. Naomi, I just want to tell you thank you for the support of my family. And God bless you for what you're doing. And you support our family with my son. And my family really, really appreciate that, and God bless you. The last time we heard from Marcus Arbery Sr. was when Prosecutor Jesse Evans read his statement opposing Bond for William Roddy Bryan. You heard that in the intro to this episode. Bryan's bond was denied, so he remains in jail. So do Travis McMichael, 
the man who killed Arbery with three shotgun blasts, and his father, Greg McMichael. He initiated the chase that ended in Arbery's death. All three men are charged with malice murder. The McMichaels should have their bond hearings fairly soon. And with that in mind, I reached out to their lawyers. We've all seen the horrific video of Arbery's final seconds on Earth. We know what happened. After Roddy Bryan's video was made public, President Donald Trump called what happened heartbreaking. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden went even further. He wrote, Lynched before our very eyes. Lynched so plainly, unmistakably, and without mercy. Atlanta's Democratic mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, also called it a lynching. So did Georgia's former Republican Attorney General, Sam Olins. Many believe that McMichaels are guilty as charged, maybe even guilty as sin. I don't know if you know this, but my late father worked 26 years for the same newspaper I work for now. He was a columnist for a while, but mostly he was an editor. He was also a great dad. When I got the AJC Courts and Legal Affairs job more years ago than I want to count, my dad told me, Everyone who's charged with a crime is presumed innocent until proven guilty. Most people are aware of that, but it's very easy to forget. Never forget it. That was good advice, and the listeners of Breakdown know we tell all sides of the story. That's why I was interested in father and son McMichael. Last week, my colleague, Asia Burns, and I sat, socially distanced, with Bob Rubin and Jason Sheffield in the conference room in their office. We also had a Zoom call with lawyers Frank and Laura Hogue. They live in Macon, about 75 miles south of Atlanta. We learned quite a bit about the McMichaels. And quite a bit more than that, right? I'll say. We'll get to that a bit later. But first, let's tell you about father and son. We'll start with Greg McMichael. He's 64 years old, and before his arrest, he lived in a rental home that looks out over the Satilla River and the marshes of Glen. He lived there with his wife, Lee, of 37 years, his son, Travis, and his daughter, Lindsay. There's a dock out back for his boat. There's a sink and an area to clean fresh-caught fish. McMichael had plans of running a tour boat operation for tourists who wanted to explore the beautiful Golden Isles without getting lost in the maze of rivers and creeks that wander through the marshes. Greg McMichael grew up in Brunswick. After high school, he joined the U.S. Naval Reserve. He went on to active duty in the Navy in 1975 and was honorably discharged two years later in 1977. Greg and Travis have something in common. They very likely saved some lives. Greg McMichael is represented by Frank and Laura Hogue. The Hogues first met at Mercer University's Law School in 1988. They've been married for 28 years and have been law partners for 23 years. Here's Frank reading a letter of commendation addressed to Greg McMichael from the commander of the Sixth Fleet. Airman McMichael's heroic performance while serving in Fleet Air Reconnaissance Squadron 2 on 6 September 1976 was commendable. While swimming at Fuente Bravia Beach in the Bay of Cadiz, Spain, Airman McMichael noticed a shipmate in danger of drowning. Unhesitatingly entering the rough water, he assisted in bringing the man to safety. Airman McMichael's quick response and disregard for his own personal safety contributed significantly to the successful rescue of his shipmate. Airman McMichael's courageous and prompt actions reflect great credit upon himself 
and the United States Sixth Fleet. Signed by Harry D. Train II, Vice Admiral, United States Navy, Commander Sixth Fleet. Frank was quick to add this. We know uh, additional facts about the story is that when Greg noticed this distressed sailor in the water, uh, a young Spanish boy was walking by, a teenager, with a surfboard. And Greg ran over and snatched it out of his hands. And of course, the kid looked shocked and then dove into the surf and paddled his way out to the distressed sailor and then was able to get the man up onto the board and then was able to get back to the beach where help arrived and the man lived. And then I add this note, the, the man was African-American, a fellow sailor in the United States Navy. After the Navy, McMichael worked odd jobs, such as being a roofer. He sold life insurance and worked sales at a boat and repair shop. In 1982, when he was 27, he joined the Glenn County Police Department. He was eventually promoted to detective. In May 1986, he helped solve a big case in an incredibly dramatic way. And this kind of police work is the kind of stuff you almost never hear about outside of true crime TV shows. Police had found 27-year-old Carol Beatty, a former state and national amateur diving champion. She was close to death in her duplex on St. Simons Island. She'd been stabbed numerous times, including a four-inch gash that severed her windpipe and left her unable to speak. When Beauty was in the hospital, a doctor summoned McMichael to her bedside when it was clear she was trying to communicate something. Here's Frank Hogue reading from a Georgia Supreme Court opinion about what happened next. He read her lips to say the name Bob. He then sounded out the name Bob and asked the victim if this was correct. She nodded her head affirmatively. When asked the last name of her assailant, the victim mouthed a word McMichael could not understand. He then asked the victim if the name began with an A. She shook her head negatively. McMichael proceeded in this manner through the alphabet until he asked about the letter N, the victim nodded her head vigorously and squeezed his hand. By this procedure, McMichael was able to elicit affirmative shakes of the head from the victim to the letters N-E-W-L-A. McMichael then asked the victim if the last name was Newland. The victim nodded her head again very vigorously and squeezed McMichael's hand. Beattie lived for only 22 hours after the attack. Newland was convicted and given the death penalty for Beattie's murder. Police said he killed her because she spurned his sexual advances. Newland was put to death by lethal injection in 2009, and McMichael was there to witness it. And you won't believe this coincidence. On January 21st, just a few weeks before the Arbery shooting, our colleague, Jennifer Brett, interviewed McMichael on the phone, over two calls. She just happened to remember it after reading a draft of this episode. He had talked about the Beatty case. That's right. She was reporting on an upcoming execution and trying to find family members of the victim. Her search led her to one police officer who worked the case, but he recommended she call McMichael, and Jennifer found him happy to talk. And we know you're wondering, but no, she didn't record the conversations. They happened in January, and she couldn't predict what was going to happen on February 23rd. 
McMichael told her he wasn't necessarily pro-death penalty, but he thought it was appropriate in this case. It turned out the state parole board did something it rarely ever does. It granted clemency to the guy about to be put to death, sparing his life with just six hours to go. McMichael told Jennifer he knows of cases where he's sure of the guilty party, but he could never prove them. He said, quote, no one gets away with it. Whether the punishment is carried out by the penal system or whether it's carried out by God, God's ultimately going to judge it, unquote. McMichael would leave the police department in 1995 and become an investigator for the Glenn County District Attorney's Office. And because of that, local DA Jackie Johnson recused herself from the Arbery case. Her successor, George Barnhill, also recused himself, and that was at least partly because his son, who was a prosecutor in Johnson's office, had once worked with McMichael. Although Roddy Bryan was denied bond, the Hogues believe Greg McMichael should be granted bail. Here's Laura Hogue. There's really just no other way around it, Bill, but to accept the fact that if there were to be a poster child for, for bond, it would be Greg McMichael. Rarely do we have clients who've spent over 25 years in law enforcement honorably to be described by just about everyone that knows him as the guy who's going to go above and beyond to help. He's the sort of person that a neighborhood looks to, to help out, the person you can go to. So he's the kind of person, but for the, the nature of this case, the notoriety of the case, the sort of person that you would expect to be bonded out and to have received a, a, the, the credit that's due someone who's lived a long, honorable life in service to his community. McMichael has also had some pretty significant health problems, not so good for a 64-year-old man during the coronavirus pandemic. He's had two heart attacks, and he had a stroke in 2019. Laura said that's what led him to retire from the DA's office. Let's turn to Greg McMichael's 34-year-old son. When asked what the public should know about Travis McMichael, the man who shot and killed Arbery, Bob Rubin got right to the point. He is not a stereotype. He's not a caricature of a Southern vigilante racist that he's been made out to be. Um, he actually is a, is a man who has lived a very good life, a life of helping others, of providing for his family, um, and of being there when people need all throughout his career. Here's Ruben's law partner, Jason Sheffield. Travis McMichael has always felt and always exemplified duty and service to his family, to his community, and to his country. And he has created an entire life around that sense of duty and service to others across the spectrum of human beings and of existence. Uh, he has constantly placed himself in situations where he can be the one that steps forward kind of a frontline man to take on difficult tasks for the betterment of other people. Everything that we hear about Travis McMichael is that he is a pleasure, that he is kind-hearted, that he is well-intentioned, he's smart, and that he cares deeply about others. Travis went to Brunswick High School. 
When he was 17, he was working as a lifeguard at a camp for children who'd lost close family members. On one particular day, he saw a little boy that sunk to the bottom of the pool. He dived in the pool, and he rescued him. The camp's director sent Travis a handwritten note, quote, To achieve excellence in anything we do in life is rare for most individuals. Your performance as a lifeguard at Camp Courage on May 3, 2003, helped save a life and was one of excellence. Thanks for being there. A few years after graduating from high school, Travis enlisted in the U.S. Coast Guard. He'd served there for nine years before being honorably discharged. Coast Guard records show McMichael was at one time stationed in Alameda, California, on a drug interdiction assignment. He patrolled the Pacific Ocean waters from California to Columbia. He would be tasked with going onto boats with individuals that he didn't know, assessing the situation, trying to create distance between all the people, ask questions, find out what was going on, whether laws were being broken, and then make critical decisions and terminations about what to do next. In a 2012 letter of commendation, a Coast Guard captain told McMichael he was an indispensable member of his unit stationed in Pascagoula, Mississippi. He had successfully completed 175 law enforcement boardings of suspect boats. He also boosted the morale of his crew by standing duty so others could take shore leave. In 2013, McMichael was stationed in Mayport, Florida. He served as a tactical crewman aboard a 45-foot response boat. On December 21st, McMichael raced to the Carolina 3, a fishing boat with three people aboard. It had just crashed into the entrance jetty to the St. Johns River. Once McMichael boarded the fishing boat and assessed its damage, he quickly evacuated the crew. Shortly after everyone boarded the Coast Guard boat, the Carolina 3 sank. Here's his captain in another letter of commendation. Quote, With your quick thinking and application of sound judgment and a strong bias for your action, you undeniably saved the crew. Unquote. Nine months later, McMichael was at it again. Facing eight-foot waves and gusts of 35-mile-an-hour winds, McMichael and his crew raced to save Lawrence and Sue Nelson. Their boat had also crashed into a St. John's River jetty. Here's a memo from McMichael's captain. Working in close proximity to the jetties, which are unforgiving, you located Lawrence and Susan, plucked them from the seas in the dark of night, and took them to shore. Truly amazing Coast Guard work. The captain even enclosed a copy of a thank you note written by the Nelson's grandchildren. In cute little kid's handwriting, it says, Thank you for saving Granddad and Granny Sue. They even drew a picture of the rescue. The following year, McMichael was interviewed by the Florida Times Union about the upcoming boating season. The story noted Florida led the nation in boating deaths. In his interview, McMichael described the Nelson's rescue, and he said he still had their grandkids' letter. After the Coast Guard, McMichael met a woman. They had a son and named him Everett. The couple is no longer together, but McMichael has joint legal custody. Before his arrest, he was seeing Everett every other week. Reuben said McMichael was cradling his son and trying to get him to take a nap on the day Greg McMichael shouted for him to come out and chase Arbery down the street. In their bond motion, Reuben and Sheffield included a letter from Kurt Hall, a sergeant in the U.S. Marine Corps. I am an old friend of Travis McMichael, he wrote. I am also multiracial with a brown complexion. Hall said he served three years with McMichael when they were both stationed at the Coast Guard base in Mississippi. They were roommates and went on search and rescue missions. They had cookouts, went to the beach, watched games on TV, took their trucks out for fun in the mud. 
and he wrote, I spent enough time with Travis to know who he is. Travis is a reliable friend who will drop what he's doing to help you out. We always said he needed his own TV show because of the laughter he brought us. He is tactful and doesn't go looking for trouble. In no way, shape, or form is Travis hateful towards any group of people, nor does he look down on anyone based on race, religion, or beliefs. And he added this, I know that Travis is a good human and would never harm the innocent. These testimonials to Travis McMichael's character are from people who know him, people who have no reason to lie. But is it hard to square that image of Travis McMichael with the man who fired three shotgun blasts into Ahmaud Arbery? The GBI and the Cobb County District Attorney's Office didn't arrest and indict the man who helped to rescue people at sea or who had a multiracial friend. They charged a man who shot an unarmed man and someone who is known to have used racial epithets. We don't know whether racism resides in Travis McMichael's heart and mind. Obviously, his biracial friend Kurt Hall didn't see that in him. On the flip side, here's an exchange between Sheffield and GBI agent Richard Dial during the preliminary hearing. I understand um, that you have said that Mr. Ryan has put this statement coming out of the mouth of Travis McMichael, this horrible thing. In looking so far in the case, whether it's on Travis's interaction through the neighborhood Facebook page or on his phone, have you seen any other evidence that he has used that horrible N-word anywhere else? Yes, for many times. One particular one that comes to mind is he made the statement that he loved his job because he was out on a boat and there weren't any N-words anywhere. Makes me wonder, can someone who uses vile, racist language have black friends? I don't know. But you'd think they wouldn't use that kind of language around those friends. Right. At what I thought would be about the end of our interview, I had to bring up what Agent Dial related during the preliminary hearing. That Roddy Bryan had told agents he heard McMichael say effing N-word as he stood over the dying Arbery. It seemed like they were ready to address that head on. The issue as we understand it is that Roddy Bryan was in an interview with the GBI wherein he had completed kind of describing everything that happened that day. And then there was a very long kind of silence, a very weird exchange of glances between lawyer and client. And then, a, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that Travis McMichael said something really awful uh, to Ahmad as he was laying on the ground. And then comes out this sort of squeaked out statement by Roddy Bryant that he used this horrible epithet. We were not surprised that he injected that in the case. And by he, I mean Roddy Bryan. And the agent taking the statement from him did not look surprised. It looked very scripted. What we later have come to realize is that Roddy Bryan was interviewed prior to that moment three or four times by the Glenn County Police Department, by the GBI. That was the fourth interview and the interview was set up with the intention that Roddy Bryan would be cooperating with the government and providing information that would be helpful to them. And the one thing that was unresolved at that time was whether or not this was a hate crime. And when we look back now through the discovery 
and all the opportunities that Roddy Bryan had to say what he heard that day, not only was he specifically asked what he heard that day and never made a statement that he heard anything so horrific as what he said he heard to the police and the GBI on that day in May. Sheffield and Rubin said they have been going through all the discovery that's been turned over to the defense by the prosecution. This includes video footage taken by police who arrived at the scene just after the fatal shooting. Here's Sheffield. We see that he was so far away from that part of the scene, in his car, windows up, and the police were literally on scene within seconds. And so, from what we can tell, there is nothing to support that not only did Travis say that, at that moment, but that Roddy Bryan could ever hear him say anything like that. In order for him to hear it, every neighbor in the surrounding area would have an easier time hearing it and would have heard it as well. And so when you've got tape recordings going, you've got video cameras going, you've got neighbors everywhere, Roddy Bryan stands alone when he says that he heard Travis say that. Here's Ruben. On the scene, um, Roddy Ryan is interviewed by Glen County Police while he's standing next to his truck, literally, you know, minutes after Mr. Arbery was, was killed. And the police officer not only asked him what he saw, but, but asked him specifically, what did you hear? And he heard Travis McMichael say, stop, stop, stop. And then he heard the struggle, the interaction of human beings, and that's all he heard. And that's what he told Glen County Police within minutes. And there was a motive for him to bring up race in his fourth interview because at that point, he's looking to cut a deal. He's looking for some opportunity to not get arrested, not be a part of this case. He thinks this is his ticket. As for Agent Dial's testimony? Well, it's just left hanging there in a preliminary hearing with no context by Agent Dial, which is really unfair to everybody, uh, but certainly to Travis McMichael in the world. I mean, you could feel the world gasping. When they, when, you know, when they heard that, and we gasped. Um, but when you actually look at what's happening, it, it, it can't be true, and I don't think it is true. As we told you in the previous episode, the McMichaels, and Brian too, will try to convince the jury that they had a right to detain Arbery under Georgia's citizen's arrest law. They will have to show they had reasonable and probable grounds of suspicion that Arbery had committed a felony. Both Frank Hogue and Rubin said that Arbery had been filmed at least two times on a security video inside a nearby house under construction. It was a couple of doors down from the McMichaels house and owned by Larry English. English lives in Douglas, Georgia, about 95 miles away, and he had installed security cameras on the property. And there apparently had been quite a few break-ins in the Satilla Shores neighborhood in the months leading up to Arbery's killing. In fact, the AJC's reporting found that between August 2019 and February 23, 2020, there were 87 calls from Satilla Shores reporting various activity. That included suspicious behavior, trespassing, and thefts. Here's Sheffield. There were many suspicious characters or people in the neighborhood that were being talked about through the Facebook page, regardless of color. And by this time, five or six guns had been taken out of cars within a two-mile radius of this, of this neighborhood, in the neighborhood and within a two-mile radius. And they were all communicating 
saying things like, what is going on here? When is this going to end? I've got kids. My aging mother is in this neighborhood. What are we going to do? And so you've got people who are saying, we've got to call the police. We've got to call the police. We've got to call the police. But there are a few people who consider themselves to be capable enough, present in their mind enough to say, you know what? If we have an opportunity, we have to take it to keep our eyes on these individuals until the police arrive. And that is the goal. Just keep our eyes on them until the police can arrive so that they can be apprehended. It certainly changes things or it complicates things that they have firearms on them when they do this. But that is what the law allows. And they were following the law. Even Travis McMichael said he had a gun stolen out of his truck. Why do people leave guns inside their cars and trucks, especially when there have been a lot of break-ins? I know, right? Sheffield and Rubin told us that the McMichaels were among those in the neighborhood who went out and confronted people seen entering the English house under construction. That includes Travis and his father going to question several white individuals who had been seen in the neighborhood, driving in and driving out, and then parking a car nearby under a bridge where they determined that these were probably some homeless people, but that they could be the ones responsible for a lot of the thefts in the neighborhood. And so they approached them, carrying firearms for their safety, to talk to them and call the police. You know, everything is in con- has to be in context, right? So a black man is in the neighborhood, ends up getting shot and killed. Um, what is left out of that narrative is why was he in the neighborhood and who else was suspected of breaking into this house? Now, white people were suspected of breaking into the house and white people were approached um, by Travis McMichael when uh, he came upon her. This included McMichael confronting a lady he saw on the premises. As it turns out, her dog had gotten loose and run onto the English's property. She's white. I mean, it had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with fear that the community had that, that they were not safe. And Travis and, and, and Greg uh, felt like they could help the situation, help the Glen County Police. So it wasn't, this case is not about race. Um, Mr. Arbery was not targeted because he's black. A lot of people think, well, if he was not black, they wouldn't have gone after him. And that could be the farther from the truth. Here's Frank Hogue. And, and, you know, of course, the key difference there between the state's theory of that and our theory of that is going to be the intent in doing that. The, the actions are largely undisputed. Some of them are on video. It's the why behind the actions that will be in dispute. You know, the state's obviously taken the position, and this is the language used by the DA at the preliminary hearing, that they hunted, trapped, and executed. Well, no, they went after a guy they suspected of being a serial burglar in their neighborhood to stop him so the police could come and further investigate to see, is this the guy? Then, Hogue refers to Arbery. The guy had been seen in the English house several times before, all on video. The McMichaels were aware of all this. This was what was in their head not the narrative you're hearing, which is, ah, 
there's a black man running in our neighborhood. Let's go trap him and shoot him. That's far from that. Okay, during the preliminary hearing, GBI agent Dahl confirmed that Aubrey was seen on the security video at English's house a few times before. Apparently, the first occasion occurred in October 2019. Here's English calling 911. Lumberns, the communications operator, Quinn, how can I help you? Yes, ma'am. This is Larry English. I'm calling from Douglas, Georgia. Mm-hmm. I have I have a house that we're under construction on, and I have a dock down at 220 Satilla Drive at Satilla Shores in Brunswick. Okay. I got a camera system there, and I've got a trespasser there. It's uh, he's a a colored guy, got real curly looking hair. He's tattooed down both arms, and. Uh, He's over there kind of plundering around. I don't know what's going on. I was just wondering if you could send a a deputy or somebody out to check him out for me, please. During that call, English said he'd never seen that person before in his security video. Here he is calling 911 again on November 18th. Glenbrook Communications, Robert Johnson. Hello? This is Glenbrook Communications. Yes, I need to... This is uh, Larry English from 220 Satilla Drive. I called last night, and there's somebody back over there on the property again tonight. I just talked with uh, Officer Rash, and he he said he's not on duty, so he told me to call it in. Yes, sir, and you said this was 220 Satilla Drive? Yes, ma'am, 220 Satilla Drive, and tonight it's a black male... Wear, not wearing a shirt, got tattoos on his arms, and a pair of look like maybe light-colored shorts. Okay, you said no shirt and light-colored shorts. Look like yes, yeah, a black and white. It's an infrared camera, but look like it light-colored shorts um, and uh, tattoos. He's the same guy that was over there about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Yes, sir. Can you tell what he's doing? He was just wandering around under the carport, looking in the boat. And, Then there's February the 11th, just 12 days before the shooting. This time, Travis McMichael calls in. He'd seen someone on the property, so he turned his truck lights on him to see who it was. Here's Sheffield again. February the 11th, under a situation that was very scary, that ultimately resulted in Travis believing that he had a firearm on him that night, which caused Travis to put his car in reverse and drive away because he was scared. Called the police, and then his dad and another neighbor went down to the house to try to see if they could delay or stall this individual. Here's the 911 call, and it's pretty evident that Travis McMichael is extremely bothered by what just happened. 911, what's the address of your emergency? Uh, Satilla Drive, 230, Satilla Drive. What's going on? We got a, uh, we've had a string of burglaries. Um, I was leaving the neighborhood, and I just caught a guy running into a, um, house being built two houses down from me. Um, when I turned around, he took off running into the house. Okay. What did he look like? Uh, it's a black male. Red shirt, white shorts. And you said the house is being built? It's being built. Yes, ma'am. It's vacant right now. He is in the house. Where are you at now? I am sitting right across the street in my truck watching the house. The dispatcher, apparently worried about McMichael, asked this. 
Are you okay? Yeah, yeah. When I, it just startled me. Um, when I turned around, when I turned around and saw him and backed up, he reached into his pocket and ran into the house. So I don't know if he's armed or not, um, but he looked like he was acting like he was. So, uh, you know, be mindful of that. Okay. Which pocket did he reach into? Uh, left, I believe. So what happened when you first saw him? He's trying to he look behind a bus. He, okay. tried, he was coming through somebody's yard, and I looked back, and uh, and uh, he was trying to sneak behind a bush. And he, when I drove on by, he got behind a uh, portal that they had here. And uh, when I backed up, he looked at me. I, I went ahead and backed up to the road, and he reached in his pockets. I kind of watched him, and he ran off into the house, and then stepped back out and went back into the house. And that's when I, that's when I called called y'all. Okay. Well, we've been having a lot of burglaries and break-ins around here lately, mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, I had a pistol stolen January first, actually. And uh, you know, he he's I've never seen this guy before in the neighborhood. And we've been kind of keeping an eye, and you know, sure enough, there's one. You know, All right. through the yards, you know. The operator then tells McMichael police have arrived at the scene and ends the call. Aubrey's family said that he loved to jog and was out for a run the day he was killed, not stopping to rob that home. And no items from the English home were found on his body when police arrived at the scene. He was also unarmed. In fact, GBI agent Dial suggested Aubrey likely stopped at the house because it had running water and he was thirsty. But in our interview, both Reuben and Sheffield said English had told police and had told neighbors that he had had thousands of dollars in fishing equipment and electronics stolen out of his boat. The boat apparently had been stored in a number of locations, one of them being the house under construction. Here's Sheffield talking about the night of February the 11th. And then there's the repeat visits by Mr. Arbery. And so the question then becomes, what's he doing in the house late at night when it's dark? You know, if it's 1.8 miles from his house, you know, is this really about water? Is this really about trying to study electrical design? You know, what is this about exactly? Has he tried to enter other people's homes? You know, all these questions are sort of out there that, that we're seeking to answer. But it's not about, you know, episode of jogging. What happened to Arbery must have been terrifying. Being chased by two armed guys in one pickup and by another driven by Brian that may have struck him. And of course, there was his decision to charge at Travis McMichael when he had his shotgun pointed right at him. And as for reasonable suspicion, Greg McMichael is going to have to deal with what he told investigators. This is Agent Dial during the preliminary hearing. Um, his statement to the effect is he didn't know Mr. Aubrey had stolen anything or not, but he had a gut feeling that Mr. Aubrey may have been responsible for thefts that were in the neighborhood. And Dial also said this, which I'll never forget. I don't believe it was self-defense by Mr. McMichael. I believe it was self-defense by Mr. Aubrey. That's why he took the warrants. Why he took the Yes, sir. I believe Mr. Aubrey was being pursued, and he ran until he couldn't run anymore, and then turned his back to a man with a shotgun, or or fight with his bare hands against the man with a shotgun. He chose to fight. And not to run through a side yard, or not to run through another yard, or anything like that. I think his thing was to. I believe Mr. Aubrey's decision was to just try to get away when he felt like he could not escape. Chose to fight. 
We reached out to the legal team representing Arbery's family, and we received this reply from Atlanta lawyer Chris Stewart. Quote, We don't have a response or even want to acknowledge their attempt at damage control. End quote. A few more things. Since our last episode, Roddy Bryan's lawyer, Kevin Goff, filed a motion seeking to have the murder charges dismissed on immunity grounds. In other words, he's claiming self-defense saying Travis McMichael was justified in using lethal force against Arbery because he charged at him. If you listen to Breakdown Season 7, Judgment Call, you'll remember that police officer Chip Olson filed a similar motion. This led to a mini-trial before the real trial, with the judge deciding whether self-defense was justified. And you know how that went. Interestingly, the two teams of lawyers for the McMichaels did not file such a motion. So for them, it looks like it's going to be an all-or-nothing jury trial. Finally, these bond hearings for the McMichaels could really be something. At Roddy Bryan's bond hearing, lawyer Kevin Goff agreed to let Prosecutor Jesse Evans put into evidence the transcript of the preliminary hearing. Since then, the Hoags, Reuben, and Sheffield filed a joint motion objecting to the transcript being put into evidence. In essence, they said a preliminary hearing requires only probable cause to allow the case to go forward. At a bond hearing, the legal standard is preponderance of the evidence. That's on a higher scale of the burden of proof. At the bond hearing, the defense will present witnesses to establish the McMichael's character, reputation, and roots in the community, the motion said. It also said the defense will be prepared to put up witnesses and evidence to rebut any effort by the state to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that crimes were committed. In other words, the gloves may come off. Next, on Breakdown. But if the DA wants to get into the facts of the case, and if, or if the judge thinks the facts go to whether they're a flight risk, then we need to get into the facts and we're prepared to do that. As always, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back after the upcoming bond hearings for sure. Please, please stay safe during this pandemic. Practice social distancing and wear a mask when you're out in a crowded area. And get that flu shot. We all need to look out for each other, right? Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Monica Richardson, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. It's the South's biggest deal for AJC podcast listeners. For a limited time, subscribe and you'll get digital access to the AJC for $1.99 per week. 
for life. As long as you keep your subscription, that's our sports and politics coverage, breaking news and in-depth investigations, food and dining, and more from AJC.com every day for life. You'll also unlock access to our app, exclusive films, events, and newsletters. Subscribe now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start for new subscribers only. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC.